are pouring from the buildings now. There's cars toppled, buildings entirely crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I, I really need to leave. So the fences inform me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I, I see some people running now. In the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and my pal Shag is off this week, so I decided we're going to talk about some more old Aquaman comics, because that's my favorite thing to talk about. Specifically, uh, the Aquaman backup strips that appeared in Adventure Comics numbers 435, 436, and 437 from 1974. They were sort of the tryout runs before Aqua became the lead feature in Adventure Comics. They are written by Steve Skeets and drawn by a very young Mike Grell. And as any of us in the uh, podcasting community knows, uh, if you're talking about Mike Grell, there's really only one, actually two, people that you want to speak to about Mike Grell because they are the experts on the man's work. And that is, of course, the hosts of the Warlord Worlds podcast, which is all about Mike Grell, as well as some other fine shows. Uh, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, hello, guys, and welcome to the Fire and Water podcast. Hi, Rob. Happy to be here. Yes, thanks for having us back, Rob. Ah, this is well. Have, have you been on this show before? You've been on oh. Film and Water. Have you been on Fire and Water? I, I'm uh, trying to think. You know, you're right. I don't think we have been on Fire and Water. We've been on Film and Water. You're right. Well, there you go. Well, then, welcome to the Fire and Water podcast. There we go. Thank you. you. You're making you, your way you, around the network. Long-time you fans. I feel like I've been part of the show just list, as a listener for so long. Yeah, and you do so many podcasts, I, I can't keep straight what they are anyway. So. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we, like, I, like I said, we are going to be talking about these, uh, these stories that are kind of unheralded. They've never been reprinted anywhere. Um, and, you know, this was something that I decided a while back that I, when I wanted to cover them, uh, that, you know, since Mike Grell is really sort of the big, big thing here, because this was early in his career, it would be too perfect to not, uh, too perfect to have uh, Darren and Ruth talk about it, because they, like they are the experts on the men's work. But before we get to that, we have to thank our sponsor, which is, of course, Instock Trades. This episode of the Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InstockTrades.com. Instock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off, with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. So, guys, what do you have? Well, since we're talking about Mike Grell today, we knew we should choose something by him. So I'll choose John Sable Freelance, The Omnibus, Volume 2, 
for those who don't know, John Sable's this quasi-bounty hunter detective. He was an Olympic athlete in the past. He writes children's stories under a pseudonym, uh, Life of Adventure. And Volume 2 reprints issues 17 through 33. Those were originally published in 84 to 86. And it's 412 pages in full color, a retail price of $39.95. In-stock's trades price is $29.96, which is 25% off. Good deal. I remember I read that comic when I was a kid. That was a really great book, John Sale. I haven't read it in years. I have to. It'd be interesting to revisit that because I remember really liking that series. Yeah, it, it holds up well. Yes, I would. I would say that really holds up well. And I have chosen the Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters, and that's the 1987 miniseries in which Mike Grell reinvented the character. So that's where he gave him the hood for the first time and turned him into an urban vigilante. And I believe it's a beautiful book. It has 160 pages, also full color. The retail price is $14.99, but in stock trades has it for $8.69, which is 42% off of the cover price. That's a good and deal. I remember getting that one, too. Yeah, that is a great deal. Everyone should have that in their collection for that price. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful miniseries. Really, really wonderful. Uh, and I have a selection, too, so we're doing three this week, so you're welcome in Stock Trades. Uh, this is Green Arrow, <laughs> Trade Paperback Volume 1, Hunter's Moon, which is the Green Arrow series that came out right after, uh, you know, led to, was the, the, the result of the Longbow Hunters. And this is reprints Green Arrow issues one through six. Writer is Mike Grell. The artists are Ed Hannigan, Dick Giordano, and Frank McLaughlin. And the cover is by Mike Grell. And it's a really, really beautiful cover of him in his Longbow Hunter's gear. Really wonderfully moody painting. 160 pages. Normal price, $14.99. In stock. Trades price, $8.69. That's 42% off. So you can get all of this stuff for like... You basically, if you bought all three of these books, you would get free shipping automatically, and that's good oh, stuff. And this great. is all really good Mike Grell material. So these are all really, really fine comics. And so for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com, and we thank them for their support. So yes, yes, we do, and, and then they can listen to Warlord Worlds, where we can talk about all of them. Perfect. It's <laughs> the perfect companion. We we are all are working on these things of having like you know audio accompaniment to all the comics we read. When we're growing up, you know, like who's who or Secret Origins or Warlord or John Sable. It's like you just, it's like soundtrack. You just pop in, you know, yes. your, queue up your podcast uh, of choice and uh, listen to what's going on. So, so like I said, these stories um, that ran in the back of Adventure Comics, I need to give a little bit of context here because in 1974, Aquaman was in kind of a weird place. He, of course, started appearing in the Super Friends uh, the year earlier, which made him a big TV star. But in the comics, he really wasn't appearing anywhere except for Justice League. His original series had been canceled in 1971, and he had been not given a solo series in that time. So I think DC was feeling like, well, this guy is in the Super Friends. He's in Justice League. He's in the Super Friends comic. Maybe he'll work again as a solo act. And so what they did is they came up with a three-issue sequence. It's funny. In a letters page, they refer to it as a potentially four-issue series, which is strange. I'm not sure how they didn't know how many parts this was going to be. But they put it in the back of Adventures 437, 435, 436, 437, which was right in the middle of the wonderful Spectre run by Mike Fleischer and Jim Perra, which, as everybody knows, is some of my favorite comics, which will be covered over on Ryan Daly's show, The Podcasting Hour, which is uh, available here on our own Fire and Warner Podcast Network. So you had the front uh, book, which was Spectre featuring the great Jim Aparo covers and then the back by Steve Skeets and new artist Mike Grell. So we're going to get jump right into the first story, which is called As the Undersea City Sleeps. And we see it's Aquaman heading his way into Atlantis. 
And as he's getting there, he sees all the guards on the outside are all laying there unconscious. He's like, what the hell is going on here? They're all sleeping on the job. Aquaman's obviously not paying too close attention because they doesn't look like they're sleeping. These guys look like they're unconscious. And, of course, he notices this is the work of his foe, Black Manta, who he sees outside the uh, outside of Atlantis with his Manta ship. Aquaman and Manta tussle, as they are wont to do, and it ends with Manta releasing some sort of inky black cloud from a piece of equipment, temporarily blinding Aquaman. By the time Aquaman frees himself, Manta has escaped. He then heads his way into Atlantis, and he sees all the his various subjects are recovering. He has a meeting with Volko and Mira, and he talks about that uh, he's just waiting for Black Manta to strike. Later, we see a group of hooded sea farmers tending to land. Suddenly, a group of projectiles fly overhead, releasing a wave of chemicals. Once it hits the farmers, they are all knocked down, and we are left with Black Manta, having arrived in his mana ship, laughing at his victory. But of course, it's not that easy. One of the farmers is secretly Aquaman in the hood, and he's got some sort of breather on so he can re- resist uh, the, the gas that Mana shot at him. Aquaman has the drop on Mana and knocks him out. He orders Black Manta to tell his men to get back to the Manta ship, which he does. Aquaman then sends out a telepathic signal to his finny friends as he, is Manta, as he and Manta continue to fight. Mana wonders why his men haven't fired on Aquaman, and we see that they plan to, except they have their own problems. And Aquaman has... Uh, sent some of his finny friends, a couple of sharks and a giant whale, to attack the Manta ship, so that's why they're not able to help their, their pal. Aquaman beats up Black Manta. He even mentions, this must be the 47th time I've knocked this yes. pest unconscious. He takes Manta with him, and instead of arresting Manta, he just hurls Manta onto the Manta ship and basically says, get out of here, which is kind of a weird tack to take with one of your worst enemies. But he, he, gives, he gives a mulligan to Black Manta, and the end of the story is Aquaman returning back to Atlantis, presumably safe once again. And that is the end of this first sequence. So, guys, what did you think of this story? And specifically, what did you think of the artwork, which, of course, by is by Mike Grell right at the beginning of his career? Oh, I really enjoyed the story. I thought it was exciting, and I especially liked all of the underwater sequences and how Aquaman was drawn so well with swimming motions. Like, you could really sense that he was, you know, cutting through, swimming through the water with a lot of different angles. Yeah, he, he definitely looked like it was fluid swimming as opposed to sometimes some artists draw people underwater always standing on the bottom of the ocean like right. they're standing yeah, yeah, on yeah. land. <laughs> you don't get that at all here. Aquaman's always in motion. Yeah, it's uh... – when I, I, I can't remember when I first saw these stories. I, I saw them as back issues. I didn't read them when they came out at the time. I was only a, a toddler. So I think when I saw these and I saw that they were drawn by Mike Grell, it confused me because his style looked so different mm-hmm. than what I was used to because I was, I was more familiar with his you know, kind of more painterly stuff that he did on later issues of Warlord and John Sable. And so this was very, very different. And while I think some of the anatomy – is a little wonky here and there. And there's the famous panel where Aquaman is sitting in a chair, which he got accused of making it look like Aquaman is sitting on the toilet, which is a whole big thing. Uh, like, I, I, I agree with you entirely in terms of the, the, the storytelling is excellent. Like, to me, Grail had the storytelling, the comic book uh, form of telling a story down pat. So while the anatomy was something that I think he worked on and the sort of loosening of his style, the way he tells the story is terrific. And considering he's, there's a lot going on here in just seven pages, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to happen in a very short period of time. Grell really did have a handle on all this. And, you know, this was kind of the, of the era where you trained artists. This is how they got better. 
you know, nowadays they just do it all on their own in terms of like an independent book and then they move up or whatever. But here, this is how you train these young guys was, you know, you gave them a little backup and they, they got their, no pun intended, their sea legs and figured out how to do this book. And so, uh, I mean, Manta looks really cool. Manta can be very easily drawn to look very silly because of that helmet. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes people draw the head like it's the size of, you know, like it's enormous. Which yes. I think a tends to look, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, a giant watermelon. Here it's a little smaller in scale, and I think he looks more menacing. So, yeah, I think Grell does a really nice job, and I could see why. You know, and probably wasn't the easiest job in the world either, because Steve Skates at times could could write a little long. Uh, here he kind of pairs it down a little, and even the one page that's uh, Aquaman and Atlantis worrying about, oh, you know, I'm the king of the seas, and i got to protect my my people from this black mana guy. Even that gets a little wordy, but but... Grell finds a way to sort of make it work. There's one panel where it's like Aquaman's face is nearly, again, no pun intended, nearly drowned out by the words. But uh, he gives Aquaman such a nice visage in terms of the way he draws his face. It's a very heroic-looking Aquaman. So, yeah, I really like the story. I think Grell did a, a really nice job. I mean, there's not a whole lot going on. It's mana attacks, mana gets beat up, that's it. But it's a nice way to re-bring Aquaman back into being a solo star. No, you're absolutely right, Rob. I, uh, and... That page that you're talking about that's really full of words, and yet you look for and you see opportunities that Mike Grell took, like that very center panel where you have Aquaman sort of from, you know, torso up, and it's really nice the way he has him leaning against the wall with the image of Mira and Volko captured underneath. It's sort of like he was making the most of every little bit of real estate he could, especially on a page like that, which is really filled with words. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's Aquaman is a very muscular and heroic, and it looks good. I mean, it, it, I think he borrows a bit from Neil Adams. I think there's a definite Neil Adams influence in, in Mike Grell's stuff, and I think you see some of that here. Uh, but I, I like how kind of big he is. Like, he's muscular. I sort of like that. He's got a, It's a very heroic build. Can you guys talk a little bit about I mean, we could get into this later on, but, like, mm-hmm. why Grell's style changed so precipitously? I mean, it's vir- virtually unrecognizable between this and, say, John Sable. I would say that, you know, looking at these early issues, this was his first work in the comic book industry, and I think he was just trying to conform to, you know, what would be expected or kind of the comic look of the day. And, you know, kind of just starting out, still learning a lot. I've heard him talk actually about these early issues, and he's so complimentary and so grateful to those at DC who gave him this chance. You know, this was his big break. And he always said that they would spend time for him and with him and coach him and give him a lot of feedback to make his art even better. Wow. Yeah, so I don't think they do that again. They didn't do that nowadays. No, not at all. It, you know, he really came in at a good time at, at that point, and I think he looked and learned all that he could, and yes, he certainly does change his style later on. It becomes his style. I think here we're seeing not his style, but just a little bit of, you know, just like somebody who has an idea of what they want to do, and they're just starting to get, you know, a chance to develop that, but you really don't see any of what he eventually develops into here, but it's still some beautiful work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Mike Grell's work, once he really developed into who he became, is completely unique. There's nobody else's work looks like Mike Grell's, except Mike Grell. And, and, <laughs> and here, not so much. And it kind of reminds me a little bit about, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Barry Smith, his early work, uh, that it looked a lot like Jack Kirby. Like, if oh, you look okay. at the first issue of Conan the Barbarian, it looks like somebody kind of aping Jack Kirby. And you're like, that's bad. And then, of course, Barry Smith would 
move on into this whole very painterly, you know, crosshatch style, which was very specific his. But in the beginning, he was just aping Kirby. So here, it, this is much more generic comic book art. I think it's strong. Yes. Again, and the layouts are really good. Um, it's an interesting choice that the first shot we have of Aquaman after a Soul Star is of his butt. That's kind of interesting. Uh, but it's, as you said, as you guys talked about, I mean, yeah, he's always floating. He's always moving. And, and yeah, when, when characters are underwater, they tend to always be standing on the ground. And th- none of that is here. He's constantly moving around. And you really get a sense of the up and down horizontal world of being undersea. And it's, uh, I, I think it's a good, it's a really good start. It is. And I'm glad you mentioned that very first panel. We sort of had forgotten to mention that. You, of course, have interviewed Mike Rell yourself. And- right talks about that panel and the great interview that you have with him. We've heard him talk about it too, how, you know, he became known as the guy who had Aquaman moon the audience, but (laughs) (laughs) it's a, it's one of those things. And he was also criticized because you don't see Aquaman's face on the very first page of the story. But at the same time, it was such a dynamic panel that I think that that's why DC let it go. And because instead of making him redraw it, which is what they threatened to do, it's just, it captures some really nice movement, even though, he did two things in that drawing that he shouldn't have done, but they still let it go. <laughs> I'm, gl- I'm glad they did because I said I think it's a great way to intro. I mean, who doesn't know what Aquaman looks like at this point? I mean, really, <laughs> you really need to see his face. I mean, come on, it's fine. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really good it's a really good start, and obviously people responded to it because, uh, as I said, this led to you know Aquaman getting a solo series. But before we get to that, we're going to move on to Adventure 436, which appeared two months later, cover date of December 1974. So Ruth, take it away. All right. So the title of this story is "The King Is Dead: Long Live the King." And again, so Steve Skates and Mike Grell return for the second Aquaman story here, and this time. There's an extraordinarily unusual opening splash panel. Aquaman is smashing open his own head. A very dramatic start here. So we flash back to see just how we got here. In the royal chambers of Atlantis, Aquaman is being introduced to an android duplicate of himself, which will, ideally, free the king of Atlantis to attend a more important royal business. Aqualad and Mira are also present, but Aqualad doesn't like this development. So he takes a stroll outside where the Begala, last seen in Aquaman Volume 1, number 47, begins to attack Aqualad, something Aquaman becomes aware of via closed-circuit TV. He heads out, leaving his android duplicate to handle that first, you know, royal business to take care of that, and he tries to use his telepathic powers on the Begala, but it doesn't seem to work. With a wave of its hand, the Begala sends Aquaman spiraling down onto the coral reef. Aquaman passes out briefly, Waking up just in time to see the Begala, a huge giant sea creature, attach, attacking the city. He swims past it and he slips into Atlantis's protective dome. And surprisingly, he heads straight toward the android duplicate, smashing it open. And that's we're back where we started. Aquaman reaches inside the android's head and pulls out some sort of controller. And he takes it, smashes it to bits. And once he does that, we see the Begala teeter and follow o- teeter and fall over, leaving Aquaman to go after the real bad guy, who is a scientist who is an employee of someone else. And of course, that someone else was Black Manta. He was behind it all. It had to be him or Ocean Master. (laughs) One or the other. But this time, again, we get a chance to see Black Manta in action behind the scenes. This uh, this one, even though you know from the opening panel that it's a robot because you can see it, it's still a very disturbing image to see somebody's head exploded. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. <laughs> it, it grabbed my attention. It's like, what in the world? Yeah. It's it's just very upsetting to see anybody's head get blown up. And Aquaman hits it hard enough to knock it over with his fist. So it's really, again, I think the anatomy is a little sketchy here in places, but there's just something, you know, much like the, the first issue had a great splash opening, so does this. I mean, this is a hell of a grabber for a first day. Yes. <laughs> As, uh, it's sort of one of those scenes, it's like, who wouldn't want to have a duplicate of themselves that can handle all the mundane, normal business. But I guess there's always repercussions to that, and we see them here once again. <laughs> I would never go to work again if I had an Android duplicate. Oh, I know. <laughs> we, we could all use one of those. Yeah. We could all stay home and do podcasts. <laughs> exactly. That would be perfect. It would be wonderful. Yeah. And then I could even have my duplicate do the show with Shag when I don't want to talk to him. Which is ah, there you go. Time, so it worked out. I can understand why you'd want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, so what did you guys think of this installment? I've I've really enjoyed it again, and I would say, as in the previous um, issue, I like that Aquaman kind of uses his brains. He's playing a little bit of a detective very quickly to figure out what's going on and figuring out how to resolve the issue instead of just, you know, flat out just having to fight to win and be champion. He has to figure out, you know, what's the root cause of this problem and go take care of it. And with me, I thought it was interesting that it turned out to be Black Manta behind the scenes again. Of course, it could be that for these three stories, that was the intention is to have Black Manta sort of in the background manipulating things. But I almost sort of felt like in this one, they threw in having it be Black Manta who was behind it all in the end, maybe because that was a shortcut in the story. They didn't have to try to develop any motivation for the scientist who had built the android. You know, we don't really know why he did it, but oh, it's because he must work for Black Manta. Mm hmm. That's interesting. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. I mean, when you've when you've only got seven pages to work with, you don't have a lot of space. Especially you know, this this story kind of has a Scooby Doo ending of like, oh, it was all just this guy in the end. But yeah, you do. You know, if you find out that he works for Black Mana, yeah, you don't have to then give him any description. You're like, oh, okay, he's just a goon that Black Mana hired. So that right. makes a lot of sense. Um, on the art front, uh, there is some really nice effects that Grell does here. He was big on like tones. And stuff. I think he's kind of gotten he got rid of that stuff over time. But I mean, like just and this is a very small little detail. But like on on the final page of this story, the first panel when we see this guy, the scientist guy walking away, and we just see Aquaman's leg in the foreground. Yeah. Uh, and like, uh -huh. there's this really nice lighting effect around Aquaman's calf, and then the 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 part of that Aquaman's leg that would be in shadow is done in like a zipatone effect, and it's like really sharp looking. I mean, I know it's just the bottom half of Aquaman's legs. Nothing to get too terribly excited about, but just like, I, I think it's, it's like, I feel like that's Grell is trying to sort of impress his potential, you know, readers, which is good. I mean, when, you know, when you're, when you're doing a story for the first time or your, your, your work is being published in a comic, you know, and you're early on in your career, you want to really wow people and just taking the time to do that little effect like, I think that's really cool. I mean, like, it just gives it an extra little something. I really like that you pointed out that panel, uh, Rob, because, you know, it, it is a really nice perspective that he creates there. He's sort of got that forced perspective of the Aquaman's leg is so large and the scientist sneaking away then looks so small because of that. And mm -hmm. you get right. sort of a little story element there because of it. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, once again, the storytelling, I'd say, is really very assured. He does his best with the Bagala, who I think is kind of a goofy-looking monster uh -huh. with his tiny little feet and stuff. But, I mean, he didn't design it. It's a character from the 47. And I do like uh, Aqualad's very feathery 70s hair. I appreciate yeah. that. 
so he's, it's, it's, you know, he looks like he would be in like BJ and the bear or something, but, uh, <laughs> but no, again, the storytelling, I still think is very, very good. And so this is, and, and, you know, uh, did you guys ever talk about like how long it took Mike or how long it does take him to do stuff? Like he's doing pencils and inks here. That's probably like, could he, did, was he doing like a page a day? Was he, is he a particularly fast artist or is this something that he has to kind of labor on? I don't know how it was when he started out. And of course this was, you know, the new field to him working in the comic book industry. And I'm sure he poured a lot of energy and time, especially in these first uh, stories he got to do because he wanted to make a good impression having seen him draw today, like at a uh, convention where he's doing a commission behind the table, remarkably fast, like just amazingly fast and without reference material. Like he just knows what he wants to draw and gets it out there on the page very quickly. Yeah, it, it is interesting. We've seen him draw and it's, He'll have no reference materials, and he'll be carrying on a conversation at the same time. Oh, while he's, yeah, I've seen that sometimes. Yeah, it, it's really impressive. But at the same time, I will say, he I guess he can be fast, but he also doesn't consider himself as fast as he wants to be because we've heard him talk about that before. The reason he didn't draw Green Arrow, the regular series, is he just didn't feel he was fast enough to be able to write and draw as many things as he as many stories as he wanted to tell he wanted to tell more stories than he could ever really draw which is why he started turning over the reins of drawing to some other artists which of course as mike grell fans disappoints us we always want to see mike grell art no matter how good the other artists are and there were always lots of great ones but Mm -hmm. so he didn't consider himself fast enough for that but at the same time i know he can be quite fast he actually did a commission for us we try to get a commission from him most every time we see him. So we got a Tarzan commission from him the most recent time that we saw him. And I couldn't believe uh, when uh, he was telling us when he started it and how quickly it was done, and especially as detailed as it was. So he can be pretty fast, maybe faster than he realizes he is. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, these these pages look labored on by a, by a young artist. I, they had that feeling. I feel like he really did as best he could with them. And, you know, of course – you know, DC, the reaction was really good, and, and DC certainly got a return on its investment with Mike Grell, <laughs> yeah. considering what he ended up bringing to the company. And one of the, but we can even talk about that later when we when we finish up uh, Adventure Four Thirty Seven. So uh, we're going to move on. We're going to conclude this, but before we do that, we are going to take a break, and we're going to run a couple of podcast promos, and then after that, uh, Darren is going to take us through uh, the final chapter of this little trilogy. So uh, stay right here. Hi, I'm Blaine Dowler host of Bedtime in the Public Domain. In this podcast series, I'll read bedtime stories from books in the public domain. Each weekday, I'll release one chapter or short story from a selected larger collection. Once the entire book is done, I'll also release an audiobook version, including all chapters or short stories, before taking a few days off to prepare the next series. All stories will be from one of the children's categories from the Project Gutenberg website, because they do an excellent job of editing the content to ensure it's in public domain, and I have neither the time nor expertise required to do that myself. Suggestions for the stories that come next are welcome and encouraged. You can find the show at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher.
Xenozoic Xenophiles. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. And we're back, and as I said, we are now going to conclude this series of stories, which is Adventure Comics 437. This is, again, drawn by Mike Grell. It said it's written by Paul Levitz, not Steve Skeets. Now, guys, am I crazy, or does the cover, which has the specter looming over a guy who is drowning underwater as he's about to be uh, eaten by a giant fish, I feel like uh, Aquaman's probably should be aware of what's going on here. I thought so, too. I actually looked to see if he was hidden there in the background. Anyway. <laughs> Aquaman's like, hey, Spectre, what are you doing? You're just murdering people down here. under. This is, this is my kingdom. What's going on here? But no, it's not going to happen. So, uh, so what happens in this story, Darren? All right. After Black Manta's last two attacks, Aquaman is exhausted and hoping to enjoy a relaxing swim around the realm when he is suddenly zapped. Aquaman was zapped by Black Manta, of course, who watches from the safety of his Manta ship. He orders his crew to follow Aquaman's unconscious body into the pit, but the ship gets caught in a web of seaweed. Aquaman wakes up in time for the Manta ship to blast some rocks above him, causing them to crash down on him, trapping Aquaman in a small cave that's carved into the rock wall. From there, he starts looking for an escape. And I love here in the background, there's a gorgeous drawing of an octopus that's just sitting there in the darkness. Real nice touch by Mike Grell. Aquaman talks to some finny friends and learns that the cavern leads out into an open sea farm. And after some more searching, he finds his way out. Unfortunately, it isn't that easy because a giant purple creature with large gnashing teeth ensnares Aquaman in its tentacles. Aquaman is so exhausted he isn't strong enough to free himself. So still wrapped up in one of the creature's tentacles, he swims toward it at full speed. Making a hard turn at the last second, the resulting snap breaks the tentacle off. Ouch and Aquaman manages to escape. But the day's not over. On the way back to Atlantis, Aquaman's in the right place at the right time to rescue a young girl who carelessly runs in front of a giant mechanized harvester. He saves the girl, returning her back to her mother. He then collapses from exhaustion, waking up back in his royal chambers, where Mira and his doctor tell him he must take a day off to rest and recuperate. Yeah, this, this is my favorite of the three, uh, because I just love giant monsters, and this has got a great giant monster in it. Uh, I think whoever colored this, I don't think there's any colorist credits, went a little crazy on the purple because <laughs> yes. uh, not only is the octa- not only is uh, the giant creature that's going to eat Aquaman purple, but for some reason Mira is colored purple in yes. the, the final sequence. But I actually kind of like it. I think it looks kind of cool. What do you guys think? Uh, you know, I looked at that and my thought was, oh, you know, I wonder if that is wrong. And then um, also, Rob, because... This has been reprinted in uh, digital form in Comixology. Oh, okay. I didn't know and that. they changed that there. Oh, all right. So it was a so mistake then. All right. I want, well, I wonder if it was or, you know, maybe it's just somebody looked at it and thought, well, it shouldn't be. Sort of like you go back to that old, uh, the original Star Trek pilot and you get the story of how 
they you know they kept filming filming Susan Oliver with her green makeup on and the oh, film right, kept right, coming right. back the next day and and it had been color corrected because they thought something was wrong with the film. Right, <laughs> so. that's right. You guys have a lousy cinematographer. This actress is looking green. What's the matter with you guys? <laughs> but I I did notice that digitally that they corrected that here or changed it. It's interesting because when you think about the absurdity that like you know like. What Mira is wearing is not a costume. This is her clothes. She's not a superhero, really. So it makes sense that she would have different outfits because I assume, I mean, Ruth, you could tell me, but I assume that women have more than one change of clothes at any given oh, point. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I actually kind of like it. Like, the more I look at it, I'm like, I, I kind of dig the, the magenta look. You know, <laughs> I kind of cool on it. But like I said, I love this one just because I, just Aquaman fighting giant sea creatures, I cannot have enough of that. And I love the way Grell drew this thing. It's hideous. It's got all these tentacles, this big bloodshot eye, and this whole row of, like, cracked teeth. Yeah, It's those really gruesome ugly. looking. Yeah. I think it's terrific. And I, I think the storytelling is even better. I love the cutaway of Aquaman swimming through the cave. And as I mentioned, uh, or as, as Darren Rich, I love the, the octopus just hanging out in the f- foreground. Again, it's just like a great little piece of detail that Grell didn't have to do. That's extra work for him. But I love it. I just I think this thing is so much fun. I agree, and it made you want the pay, the story to be several pages longer, mm-hmm. just to have him have to explore the cave more. I would have liked that because you know there's all kinds of different sea creatures he could have come across, right. and I liked the the fish that have the little glowing the lantern on them. Like yeah. that was a nice. It's all a really nice style of fish. Lots of nice touches. Yeah, it's really terrific. Uh, I, th- I think it's just, it's really cool. I, Aquaman's, again, he's swimming around. You know, there's a lot of great poses of stuff like that. The opening splash page, he's, you know, we see him on the gates of Atlantis and then when he gets zapped. And then, you know, the whole uh, bit where he's avoid, where he's uh, talking to the, uh, the lantern fish and he's kind of like popping in through the foreground. Like, that's a nice effect. Again, I keep repeating myself. The anatomy, a little wonky here and there, but the action beats are really well done. Page five, where he's fighting the tentacle creature, and he does the snapping of the... First of all, the snapping of the tentacle is awful. That's just yes. hideous. But I love the, the little bit where he says, this has to be my last problem today. I've already filled my quota for the whole Justice League. It's just like that <laughs> little gag. And then that stupid kid who's going to get eaten by the harvester, and he saves her. I think that's really cool. It's just, like I said, it's really, really fun, just short little bursts of, of Aquaman. They're really terrific, and, and Grill does some... Nice work here. Yeah, this is the you know these are the Aquaman stories that made me first fall in love with Aquaman back in the seventies because they're just always nice little adventure stories and not a lot of depth to them. But you know when you're a kid, they're perfect. Right, and he's being a hero. He's going out there and saving people or fighting monsters, and that's what we want our heroes to do. Oh, and Rob, I know I've heard you talk about it on the show too. Just like us, you loved the Jeff Parker run on the recent Aquaman series yes. because he got to fight lots of monsters and creatures again. There you go. Right? Yeah, it's like I just feel like uh, there's a, there's a lot to be found there, and then when when writers don't necessarily do that as much, I'm like, eh, why not have him do that? That stuff's fun. So uh, I do want to ask you guys something else about Grell specifically, and maybe you can't answer this or not. But like on the final page, which is just a half page, you see that ad. Uh, do you have that in front of you of the for the Seven Soldiers of Victory? Oh, you know what, Rob? Uh, I just have the digital one in front oh, okay. of me. I didn't pull out my printed copy. Okay, because in the printed copy, it, it's a half page, and it features an ad for the Seven Soldiers of Victory, which are going to be taking over the backup strip in Adventure. And that drawing, there's this great little drawing of the Seven Soldiers of Victory, and I'll be damned if it doesn't look like the work of Mike Grell. Mm. But I can't mm. quite tell. 
And, uh, you know, it's like, it's sort of interesting to me that they would have gotten him to draw that. Uh, but I like, there's a great shot of green arrow. And to me, that looks like a girl drawing, but I just uh-huh. don't know. And it's not, there's no credit to it. So I wondered if they were like, well, look, Mike, we paid you for eight pages. Uh-huh. And the story's only seven and a half. So here, draw this, <laughs> just do this thing. It looks like a girl drawing to me. And it's, I've always loved the seven soldiers of victory. So I think it's a nice little shot. You see, it's, you know, all of them, Crimson Avenger and Shining Knight, Renaro and Speedy and Stripesy and the Vigilante. So it's it's really terrific. So Grill, well, did, Grill did great work. Yeah, he did. And I, I think his next convention coming up is in Australia. So I guess I could just book a flight and go down there and, and, and ask, ask him. him in person. <laughs> is that a good enough excuse to head to Australia, Ruth? I'd love to go. <laughs> Darn money. <laughs> See, I love that. See, I love that, that. Ruth absolutely gave you no hesitation on that. Argue was just like, oh yeah, all right, let's do it. Like that's that's the perfect thing. So right. we can just find somebody to, yeah. to treat us or win the lottery for it. We'd be there. Yeah, that would be that would be really fun. So yeah, this is a. It's all really really good stuff. And and as I mentioned, DC certainly got a. Uh, a find with Mike Rell because how long was it after this that he started Warlord? I think the first, uh, the special is in 1975, I believe. So just about a year or so later, right? Yeah. So yeah, this is this is late 74. So yeah, he went right from this to Warlord, I guess. And Warlord was a, a big hit pretty much from the beginning because it was in yeah. that first issue special and then it became its own series. So, and he ended up working for DC for, you know, what, 20 years after that? More uh, than a long that? time. Yeah. 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 So he, he went straight from this to Legion of superheroes, right? And then from Legion of superheroes to warlord. Is that the way? It oh, went? Okay. Oh, I, I forgot that he did Legion of superheroes. That's right. Yeah. He, he did. Oh, everyone keeps reminding us that he did Legion of superheroes because we haven't covered it yet on warlord. Of ah, Rose. okay. All right. <laughs> and, uh, we have a couple of people, namely Ange and Jeff Messer, who haven't forgiven us for that yet. So, <laughs> oh, those Legion fans, oh, they're so humorless. Oh, my God. But, uh, yeah, Warlord, it was interesting. When Warlord started, uh, you know, it was just that first issue special. And then I think then the series starts in 76. But it only ran like three issues and then got canceled, not because of poor sales, but just, I guess, office politics. And then publishers changed and brought it right back about six months later. Really? And then, yeah, yeah. It's, I never uh, knew that. He, um, we had actually the opportunity to hear him tell that story back at Heroes Con. It's a really nice story. I think it is it episode eight. Episode eight, I think, is when we have our Mike Grell interview, and he tells that story about how he was promised a full year run, and then he was proofreading issue number three and it says the end at the end <laughs> it's like wait this isn't right and he just got told sorry uh carmine infantino canceled you and yeah. then as as mike grill likes to tell it they brought this series back six months later because carmine infantino got canceled <laughs> <laughs> carmine did the same thing to aquaman even though aquaman was selling well so carmine great uh-huh. artist but a little something to be desired as a publisher, I would say. So, right, right. Uh, yeah, well, very cool. Uh, well said, DC, I mean, Mike Grell became one of the artists most, to me, in my mind, like most associated with DC Comics because he never did anything for Marvel, right? You know, I don't think he did anything for Marvel back at that period of time. I think he's done a couple of things for Marvel more recently. I'm trying to remember if he did. Shoot, I know he sells a couple of issues at his table of some Marvel stuff that he did, but I can't remember now what they were. Right, but I mean, I mean, from Warlord to Green Arrow, like he was sort of a DC guy, absolutely. Right, yeah, years. and so yeah, they yeah. really they whoever found him, whoever kind of stumbled their way onto him and gave him this opportunity, 
Uh, I mean, Joe Orlando was the editor here for these stories. They really did DC a service. It's what you're supposed to do. You find new talent, you develop it, you 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 know you you water the flower a little, you know, and you hope it grows into something. And they really did because Grail became one of you know the great creators. Uh, of DC Comics and Warlord is one of those characters that DC owns in perpetuity and can do things yeah. with and, and whatever. And of course, Grell went on to have this amazing career of all these other uh, you know achievements that he's done. So and this is kind of where it all started. So I'm very happy to uh, to have Aquaman be part of that mix there with yeah, the early career. Yeah, very Grell. first professional work. Yeah, mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, so. Uh, so I think that is going to do it for these uh, lookbacks on these old issues of Aquaman. I am working my way through all the old 70s Aquaman on the show. Eventually, we'll get to them all. We're working our way through it. So, Darren and Ruth, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this. I, 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 there, was only, there was only two people that I knew I could do the show with. And I was like, if I can't get you guys, you guys are busy, we'll just put it off or whatever. So I'm really, really happy I had a chance to talk to the Mike Grell experts because I have said this uh, on iTunes and I've said it on the show and I will say it to you directly. I think I mean, all your shows are, are great. You Checker Talk and Xenozoic Xenophiles. I always have to pause when I say that. I always say it wrong. But I, Warlord World, I think, is such a great idea to follow a creator across their their work, not limited to a series. I think that's such a neat idea. And I don't know anyone else who's doing it. And I think that's such a great – and I can only imagine Mike himself must be so touched to have some somebody – dedicated to his work like that and be doing a show about it. It's such a great idea for a show. So uh, it's it's great. You guys are sort of, you know, you guys are the grill expert. It has been wonderful, and he has been very opening and welcoming to us. Uh, every time we see him, he, you know, it gives us more time than he probably should. Uh, so <laughs> he certainly does appreciate it, and we can't be more happy. Uh, I mean, honestly, uh, we won't sidestep from Mike Grell for very long, but as you said, we've done three shows. We've picked three creators that we love, and the other two sort of have specific titles we're following, but we're doing some of their other work as well in sort of tangent episodes. But we have now met all three of those creators that we've been in love with for decades, and they've all three turned out to be such amazingly nice individuals and so happy and appreciative of everything we do, and they they welcome us in and you know share stories with us and are always happy to see us. Uh, we just couldn't have asked for, you know, a better reception. Uh, it sometimes is a bit unbelievable mm-hmm. how how wonderfully nice all three of them are, and Mike Grell certainly is as nice as he could be. Very cool, very cool. So, uh, where can people find these shows? Okay, all of them are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. That's right, and we also have uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr pages for each. So, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Warlord Worlds. They also all have their own web pages if you want to just go there, and there are links from there to uh, all of the other social media pages. We don't really do a lot on the web pages, but trekkertalk.com, xenozoicxenophiles.com, and warlordworlds.com will take you to all of our other social media connections. Outstanding. And we'll have those links in the show notes, of course, and we heartily recommend that you guys check those shows out. We should mention the other creators. It's Ron Randall for Trekker Talk and Mark Schultz for Xenozoic Xenophiles. Yes. Very great, good. great, great creators. Yeah, I managed to say it almost completely straight through that that time. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> so, uh, again, guys, thanks so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. We're, you guys have been listening to Fire and Water and commenting for so long. It's really great to have you on. And so, uh, thank you so much for doing it. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Rob. All right. So, uh, of course, you want to find the show, 
You can find this and all the other podcasts over on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at FWPodcast, and we're also on Facebook and probably other social media sites that the Shag insists on putting pages on that I don't want to bother with. So we won't get into that. So, again, thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, uh, fan the flame and ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice and see a land in there. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah. Yep, that's the last of them. Oh, wait. Travis Morgan, warlord of Shambhala. <laughs> 